You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest. Her name is Durga Leela. She's the author of this amazing book. And if you can see it, it's called The Yoga of Recovery, uh, Integrated Yoga and Ayurveda with Modern Recovery Tools for Addiction. Uh, Durga is a certified Ayurvedic practitioner, yoga teacher, and yoga therapist. Based here in the U.S., she serves as the director of Ayurvedic programs of the Shivananda Ashram in California. She's been doing that since 2003, and she's a professional member of the National Ayurvedic Medical Association, as I am as well. Uh, I've known Durga for quite a few years, I think now, and um, she's got an amazing story to tell about addiction, her own personal journey, and she's woven the Ayurvedic principles, which are so profound, um, into this amazing book as uh, a guide uh, that she calls the yoga of recovery. And it's really good. So Durga, welcome. It's really great to have you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to be here with you, John. You're very welcome. So um, you start the book by talking about, which I love, I'm so funny because I I uh, have just been writing this article about what Ayurveda, what Ayurveda calls the cause of disease, which is the, which we call pragya prad, which means the mistake of the intellect, sometimes talked about as crimes against wisdom and things like that. And I, as I was reading your book, I was going, oh my gosh, you know, that's, the, that's the, exactly where you started. Your book was talking about how Ayurveda really talks about the fundamental imbalance is a spiritual issue. It's not a physical issue or a disease issue. It's a spiritual issue. So I thought we could start there and tell tell us um, a little bit about how um, you know addiction is a spiritual concern more even than a physical or a disease issue that we talk about in the West, right? Everybody gets really in the West. They like to say, "Oh, this is a disease," right? But Ayurveda is like, "Well, wait a minute. Let's." Think about this as a as a uh, a memory loss between your true nature and this version of ourselves that we project on the screen to help that, that we hope people will like, right? Something along those lines. So talk to me about that. Yeah, and you put it so well. Um, the what, how I feel about it is that mistaken identity. And uh, a book that I love, Meditation and Its Practices, Swami Adi Swarananda talks about our habitual self-forgetfulness. So for me, even as a young child, that felt like a pain place to live from. Um, and it was like being taught, like educated, and also in a religious education, it still felt like, why is no one explaining these um these things that happen that seem so hurtful, like we can barely get over them. Like at, at five, I had lost my father, which in truth didn't affect me that much. But my mother had been left with five children aged between three and nine years old. And it affected her a great deal. And I was receiving all her grief and emotion and concern and worry from that young age. And so I think this real subtle and spiritual level like we can say yeah that's my that's my karma like I was born into that family and so some of my spiritual lessons therefore were 
this, and it's mentioned a lot of how much we take on in a subconscious level, like prior to six and seven years old from the emotional soup that we're in as children, you know, all the motor neurons, all the like feeding and being around the mother and the family. Um, so I think that is a big part that arises within the addictions because we see it as the big question of nature and nurture. There's this huge statistics that, that I think it's 50% of children from alcoholic homes will become alcoholic themselves. So this intergenerational nature um, and also what we're looking at now, intergenerational trauma. So the this aspect of the seed cause, which I think is part of that, the way I understand that spiritual aspect, that seed aspect of the the life force and its connection to our ancestors. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's those those studies on, you know, in Ayurveda, we call them the samskaras, the impressions, right, from our ancestors. And studies now show that stress, trauma, famine, things like that, from two or three generations ago, will actually affect the genetic code and how it's expressed, you know, in our lifetime today. There's that great study with rabbits, right, where they had a rabbit and they they kept every time they have them smell peppermint they give them a little prick with a needle and the rabbit would learn very quickly just just the a little bit of smell of the peppermint would freak them out and then the rabbit had babies and and when the babies grew up all they needed is one whiff of peppermint and they were instantly freaking out as if they got pricked right so we are we we pass that all it makes sense right you pass that stress as a genetic safety valve to make sure that we don't that we're, we're, we're equipped to handle that stress down the road. And that's what we do. And we pass it on for three generations. So if you have a history of you know, alcohol abuse or, 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 or trauma, trauma of any kind, um, then this gets passed on and it, and it becomes part of our work. Uh, I love the old saying, one of my favorite sayings, Vedic sayings, is that um, if something, to the extent that something affects you, is to the extent that it is your karma, and um, karma obviously means action. So to the extent something affects you or to the extent someone affects you is that to the extent that it is your karma, therefore your action, therefore your opportunity to take transformational action and free yourself. So it comes to you as an opportunity. So when your dad passed away and your mom didn't handle it very well, you know, obviously you handle that by creating patterns of behavior of survival as a young child but then at some point, you have the opportunity that Ayurveda says, we become conscious and realize that those patterns serve me for a spell. But now I have to free myself from those old patterns of behavior and, and let who I truly am out. And you did that, which is amazing. And, and I think that's the, I, I, I'd love to, if you don't mind sharing more about that, like, because I feel like that's what Ayurveda, I talk a lot about that. What Ayurveda is about is becoming conscious, you know, right? But you can't become conscious unless you're aware of the fact that you're unconscious. So there must have been some point in there where you went from going like, I'm unconsciously just drinking because my mom did it and I did it and I'm just, you know, self-medicating. And at some point you woke up and you had, an, you know, you became realized that somehow glimmers of consciousness started to kind of seep into your awareness and, and, and you made the change. What was that? first awakening of becoming conscious and how did you go there? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a tough one to really grab a hold of that thread because I would describe my life as, you know, um, definitely both always at the same time conscious but unable to bring forth action that supports this consciousness that I am too entangled with like the, the victim narrative or the suffering narrative, but always, always a little bit of both. You know, we talk about this system of balance. And so when, when I think of this level, I do think of the gunas and I know that's how we in Ayurveda look at the, like the psychological and the spiritual nature so I definitely had an awakeness about me, but also my pers- perspective on what I was awake to was, and I'm going to say it was a life where we we didn't really talk about, like, to me, fundamental or existential issues. Like, how do you expect me to succeed in this life when I already know we're going to die and it's all going to go to nothing? Like, so I I had that kind of nihilistic viewpoint, I think almost since the age of seven or eight, you know, and I will say that one of my early childhood diseases was asthma. And so it was also playing out in my body, like the inability to take a free breath, you know, without some pain or get like anxiety feeling. So when I look back to all that, I, I just think, wow, it's so amazing how the, they are co-arising together, this, this this deep karmic narrative story and the perspective of the mind and all the physical symptoms of the body, but also the relatedness that we're picking up these signals of what it means to belong. Because what, what will I say? There is a great amount of codependency in the, my circle so even the spirituality as religion was given as a kind of fear-based, you know, sin-based, you'll go to hell if you do this. And so like that was constraining my idea of like this conscious awareness that there's something more than this short-lived experience. Um, and just just the idea of... Um, the like the kind of punitive measures if you don't get this right this is going to happen so that was a bit of like the community I lived in and you know it was in Scotland it was a Catholic education it was you need to be educated to just even make it in this world but again part of my view was like but the people who are educated aren't that happy either (laughs) and the religious people don't seem that happy so like and I guess a lot of my issue was um, being told to do something whilst the adults who were telling me were actively not doing it, you know, themselves. So like this discordant idea between here's the truth and then here's the reality of, you know, illusion, delusion, lies that we're actually living. So from a young young age, that bothered me. Um, And so I will say um, that once I found yoga, and it was really the yoga of knowledge, the Vedanta, that was, I I describe it as my first drink, because there was an existential aspect to my addictiveness that, like, the whole mm, success and material setup that you were giving me as my life moving forward just just seemed kind of ludicrous to me. 
And so I needed something much more eternal. And if I, if I can sum that up, I always had an issue with time. You know, it seemed to me there was nothing that you could hold on to. Everything was so transient, so changing, so fleeting that like when I was young, if it was coming to Christmas, I would get myself too worked up. And so I would bring on like an ear infection or an asthma attack because I was so excited that a fun, like happy time was coming. So I'd, I'd make myself sick. So the doctor said she gets too excited. And so therefore I missed a lot of the happy times by the anticipation of them. But also if I made it to the happy time, I was already processing that it was only four hours left. There's only two hours left of this and then I have to go to bed and it's all over. And I really see that part of my mindset being a large part of my own addictiveness. And here's another thing that, and this really, this really helps me understand, especially from that young perspective of like those like imprints of addiction in our samskaras. When I said we had our mother and she was, she was an excellent mother, you know, she really provided for us. She put us before everything else. And there was five of us. And as we grew into adulthood, and by the time I was 32, my mother had died. And I say her death was brought on rapidly by alcoholism. But my brothers and sister don't always agree with me, which is amazing to me. But you know the yoga story with the elephant and the blind boys go to see the elephant. And they all describe the elephant differently, like one has felt the elephant at the trunk and one's felt the elephant at the tail and they're blind. So they're given the description and there's all these different descriptions according to where they were standing and feeling into the elephant. And I think it's interesting because we talk about denial being the elephant in the living room. And so it took me many years to understand that my perspective on the disease of alcoholism that I was growing up with it was a very different perspective from my brothers. And, you know, I heard you talking about healing in space recently, but the field of my family home was my three brothers shared a room. I shared a room with my sister. She ran away from home. So I was in that room alone. And so therefore, when my mother was drunk, she would come and visit me in my room. So I had it very up close and personal. And it's taken me a couple of decades to realize my brothers didn't get that nighttime alcoholism mm. face of my mother, which was sort of demonic, you know. So we have such a different perspective on it. Mm. And that's playing out on some kind of hunger I had for something lasting. And so because it wasn't lasting and I could kind of see that in a rational way, then I tended to reject it there's no point in that because it's not lasting so therefore yoga was such a gift that I could live here in this mm. sphere because it gave me the eternal does that sound strange yeah no I think it's it makes sense it seems like the the yoga was something that gave you it'll tell me if does this makes sense to you that it gave you a level of self-awareness and the self-awareness started like you said you kind of were on one hand conscious and on the other hand, you weren't conscious. Like you sort of knew at some point that this lifestyle wasn't sustainable yet at the same time, you would still go and do those things. So you had like, you know, we, we know there's door number one, which is go get drunk. And there was door number two, which is to, this is crazy. I can do something different. I can 
let who I am out, I can stop numbing myself and I can start letting, taking the risk to be vulnerable, the risk to be, you know, Durga, the risk to be me, you know, and be vulnerable and sensitive and all that. So there's that back and forth. You bang your head against the wall, get drunk, and you go, God, that's so stupid. And you feel remorse the next day. And we bang our head against the wall a lot, you know, for years sometimes until finally something, you go through that door number two and you go, you know, all of a sudden you start laying down new neural pavement where it's almost easier to go down that new road. And obviously yoga gave you that, right? Gave you that like, this is a yellow brick road. I could, I could go down this road and I'm a little bit more enjoying this road than, than what my mind said. You know, I either get the, the juice and the stimulation that you talk about in your book from the alcohol, but it wasn't sustainable. So, you know, after a while you beat your head against the wall, you realize that I got to do something new. And that I feel like is when you become conscious, you become like, oh, and you start realizing that, you know, all that before was just me, you know, self-medicating to um, just numb myself from, from pain. And Ayurveda, one of my other favorite sayings is that, you know, the pain is directly across from the bliss. And the reason for the pain is to get your attention. You can go to the pain, through the pain, then access who you, we truly are and then let it out. And I feel like, I guess, is it true? We just, if you're, if you're addicted, you just have to keep banging your head against the wall and feeling the pain until you finally go through it. And, and is there a way to accelerate that process where you can, you know, get to that, that window where you can see door number one and door number two, a little bit quicker and move through that pain with a little bit more guidance. And maybe that's what the yoga uh, of recovery is really all about, right? Maybe give people that heightened quicker faster level of self-awareness where they can realize that this is something way more uh on the other side of this than you know than the numbing of my my pain yes definitely and i think the different ways to do it uh, i guess what i found was that the options presented to me were sort of limited you know, I, I remember being in school and they sort of said to me, you're either going to go do this or do that. And once you go to uh, like further education, you can be like a nurse, a teacher, a doctor, like, you know, and it just seemed everything seemed like this short list. And yet when I went out into the corporate world, for instance, people had jobs that I thought, well, how did you get that job? Like, my, you know, one of them came in as the head of altruism in my um, corporate company. And I'm like, how did you even know there was such a job? Like your job is to give the corporate money away to good causes. Meanwhile, I'm working in the accounts department. So it seems like the light on the potential in my younger life had was it was quite kind of dim. And it was it was spotlighted into here's the areas where you're going to survive. So I think there's an aspect of, and I think it has been any culture that's been through you know, trying to make it at a material level, trying to recover from some of these like huge traumatic rifts that have been caused by war and loss at a bigger cultural level, that they need to reestablish material um, success, you know, feeling okay at that level. And not much can be given attention-wise to beyond that. And I say that because I also work in Vietnam with Swami Sita, and I see that same thing there that 
that there are a couple of generations beyond such a, a major event, you start to get this impact of like the, the frozen feelings kind of thawing out, but it might not happen within one generation, which is amazing to me. But I think there's what Ayurveda and yoga have taught me is that it's not this single lifetime that we're working at healing, even as an individual, like our individualness is perhaps the biggest illusion, like this myth of separation is the biggest illusion. So I I consider all the healing that I'm doing heals my mother. And it also heals some of the generations coming so that the, the idea of everything that we're doing today is going to affect both like the, the past and the future, because this aspect of time is not quite what we think it to be. But talking about that in our society too, we have for too long given too short a time for people to heal from addiction. And we've also, we also really concentrate on the identified patient. Like you are the person with the addiction and it's usually to do with alcohol and drugs. Whereas we are like society norms is addiction. And we've been raised into like really, I don't for, I don't know for how many decades or generations raised into this like real individual life, like you alone are the person um, that needs to succeed, not as part of this family, as part of this community, but you as the individual. And I think that that fundamental like forgetting of our collective nature has has been a wound to almost everyone here living this experience now. So somehow we need to do we need to get back to the collective nature. And I think Ayurveda shows me that collective nature by the connection to nature. That you know the fact that I look out into my backyard and see the five elements and understand myself to be those five elements, that, that gives me a continuity of self and of presence and I also love like I love your book three season diet because it gives me that patterning with these great rhythms and before that I was typed way too smallly small like these little limited types I am a female I am Catholic I am like Irish Scottish you know like some of these are like sentences upon themselves so I needed to kind of shake off some of those shackles. And I, I really do feel Ayurveda gave that to me. Ayurveda, Ayurveda the word Ayur, really, it gave me life. Whereas before, I kind of was trapped into this conditioned consciousness. And it was a jacket that never really fit that well. Yeah, I think you're so right. You know, when you talk about <clears throat> how our culture has become so... Um, so individualistic versus community-based and, and um, you know, young kids are come out of high school or college and all of a sudden they're on their own to make it or, or, or break it. And it's really tricky. And there's some really interesting studies um, based on a study with magpies, those birds, right? And they had a, a locked cage of food and they had one magpie trying to open up this cage and they couldn't really do it. They couldn't figure it out. So they let like, but 10 magpies come and in, in short order, they figured out how to open the cage. So it was, and then they went back to the, the anthropology and they looked at what event tripled our brain size. And they, you know, they, people say it was cooking, it was meat, it was fire, it was fishing, it was so many theories. 
But what they're actually thinking now is that it wasn't any of those individual events, it was actually coming together as community, as opposed to small little individual tribes coming together, becoming bigger tribes, that that group consciousness is actually what which actually tripled our brain size. Cause it, we just like the magpies, you know, we're smarter together than we are alone. And I think that's really important, you know, and probably a big part of why people get addicted because they feel alone and alcohol or drugs or whatever is like a, you know, it's, you're, you're not as lonely for the moment, you know? And I think that's something that's really uh, important. And you talk about three different ways that we can sort of unravel this in the beginning. One was the misuse of our senses, crimes against wisdom, and the effect of time and evolution. You already touched on that a little bit. Um, but I'm curious if you go, go through that from the addictive perspective, because those are the, those are the, the three major rules, uh, Ayurveda, that are related to the cause of disease. But let's kind of you, let's talk about that from the addiction perspective. Yeah, and that is, that is like, there's two parts to my book. I concentrate on the constitutional aspect because that allowed me to feel part of the greater whole. And then that cause of disease was a huge shift moment for me. And I did hear Mark Calpern give that talk at the California um, ashram. And it really did change my life. Uh, so what I, who I was at that point was I was a person in a 12-step fellowship and getting sober using the 12 steps of and I'll break my anonymity Alcoholics Anonymous and but I was kind of perplexed about how was it that I was the one that had this spiritual malady and nobody else did like and I was the one that had to like really retrain all my thoughts emotions and behaviors uh and no one else did so like why me type of thing so when I heard it like for instance the forgetting our true nature of spirit that placed me back into it gave me the eternal where I was kind of outraged by the transience of everything you know there was nothing solid that you could hold on to there was no security yeah and then I'll go with that crimes against wisdom piece because that was huge because here's I was sitting in a program that kept telling us we had to believe in God or a higher power and so there's a lot of debate about who that higher power is and are we being prescribed religion and I never had a problem with an idea of higher power um, because I, I always kind of felt that there was some kind of cosmic intelligence in the universe but phrasing it as crimes against wisdom to me then just said the wisdom is in here it's not out there it's not in somebody's culture or particular religious perspective like the wisdom is living me and so therefore had I experienced that yes because just like you said I'm making a decision that's against my own wisdom like I'm doing something that I don't really want to be doing and I know it won't really work, but I can't really stop myself. If it wasn't for the wisdom within us, there wouldn't be the suffering. You know, like if I found heroin, for instance, and it gave me a good feeling, then everybody plus myself would support me saying, hey, that works for you. Go ahead, like have a ball, enjoy yourself. And, you know, maybe you'll end your life early but it doesn't matter why would it matter if it wasn't for the wisdom that is living us and so that's important for me as I work with anybody with addictiveness because there's always that slight chink of their own light that is saying this isn't the solution 
but a lot of their attention is on the pain. So what they are doing is like, like first responder remedies for pain, especially from the environment that we live in, you know, which is individualistic and consumer, but also conformity. Like if you tell me these things will make me happy, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to go out and get them. And if they don't make me happy, you're going to diagnose me with anxiety or depression. Well, what if our whole lifestyle is broken? What if our whole aspirational, like this is what we should be going for in life? What if that's broken? And I think a lot of younger children, teens maybe, you know, in this generation are kind of witness to that. Like if this if this is the trajectory that you say will bring me happiness, why are you all so heavily medicated and diseased? <laughs> I mean, it's the question like, I went out to teach to Friday Night Live, which is the youth group of California. And those youngsters asked that sort of question. Like, if this is the way we're supposed to live, why are you all so unhappy? And that was part of the questioning that was arising within me. So the wisdom was there. There was like, well, wait a minute. Plus then me as an individual, like my mother told me I should marry someone rich. You know, the male, female thing. And I remember saying to her, you know what, mom, I'm just going to get rich myself so I don't have to get married. <laughs> you know, like, why would I why would I need to get it through someone else? And so that's also like that's a yoga pathway, like the bhakti compared to the jnana yoga, the direct path or, you know, the, the path that involves someone that's more like a middleman, a priest, a pujari, like someone that you interact with. So like these options were not. Like they weren't revealed to me. And then misuse of the senses, I have to say, I think that's an obstacle right now, especially because we we have kind of named addiction as a relationship, like a pathological relationship with one substance or behavior. But when you look at us as five sense beings, you know, and we're operating and interacting with our world through all the five senses and all the organs of action, we have many ways to express our like what we call acting out, what we call our unwholesome conjunction of the senses with the objects of their affection, like the sense affairs that we're having. So one thing that a couple of things I think the conversation in yoga recovery helps people is that we we use a, a phrase called the spread addiction. And it's hard to pin like a younger person, for instance, sometimes it's harder to say this person is an alcoholic because they don't fit that. They turn to alcohol for all the pain and suffering that they're feeling. They are turning to cannabis. They've got some pill popping. You know, they've got some um, over-exercising and restrictive eating habits. They've got you know, definitely the media addictions, the internet, the relationship addictions, sex, love, romance. And it kind of depends who they're hanging with, what day of the week it is, what season it is, as to what one is like happening. Um, so instead of drug of choice and yoga of recovery, we're calling it spread addiction, but also distraction of choice. But we're trained into distraction so it always interests me that, like, you know, we know there's anger is an issue. So we have anger management classes and we know stress contributes to disease. So we have stress relief techniques. But we have attention deficit disorder. 
but no, no one really emphasizes how do you train attention and attention like there was there was this lady from ions who i heard at the ashram down in the bahamas and she talked about four things that are really important to make any spiritual experience sustainable and she says intention attention repetition and guidance and those four words really really guide me like i need to set my own intention to you know find ways to be creative because my action can either heal or harm and i i need not just one way given to me i don't need a food list you know i need to pay attention to the planet and her seasons for instance where your book gifted me with being part of this rhythm and cycle and that allows me to deal with the transients because it's not an end it just brings something new you know especially now we're in like this particular fall season and i see the beauty of the newness of the season not always grieving the end of summer so there's a perspective perspective there so this this idea of the timing the being involved in all of that has just really helped me like so the the time aspect i would say is also one of the most helpful things because especially in early recovery you you might wake up in the morning and you think you're doing okay and we call the vata time the crash and crave time and like it's a time where you just think it's what catastrophizing thinking comes in like i just can't get through another day of this i'm never going to be able to make it i'm always going to be in this struggle and so realizing that that would come upon me i'd look at the clock and i'd say oh there you go it's three o'clock or it's two o'clock and you know that is the vata time of day this is a four-hour period what can i do to get through this particular period um in this day because there's the long-term building of those daily routines and habits um and i think you are probably one of the people that's helped me with that the most in your writings you know just the idea of those rhythms through the day and we live one day at a time in recovery and so the like one day at a time according to the dosha times that begins to really help us so i made the vata time of the day the time that i would just give up on all the ambitions and all the lists of things that i had to do and i would just get my dog and go for a walk and i'd just sit and i'd take in the sights and sounds of nature and walk along with her for an hour and that would change my whole day but you know it's it's that idea that i can be well one minute and then the next minute suddenly i'm not well like the really volatility which i think is the the rajas in the mind like catastrophizing is probably a good way to put that and um it is a difficult place to be for sure so i think our times of day will really help people and not not just especially in the early recovery but not just early recovery it helps us get a perspective on where we are because even as we age there could be that looking back thinking you know we've we've missed out on things that that's another big aspect that we're dealing with like because i wasn't present to my life and the people around me i've missed my childhood um my own children growing up like this is the the actual things we face so I'll stop there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I love, I love it. You mentioned earlier on that um, 
that you there was a an awareness and awakening that you realized that your actions were affecting you know your mom who, who who's your ancestors now in the past but it's also affecting the future and i wonder was there ever a, was there a time when you realized that you know that you you know durga were both this physical body having this experience but you're also the spiritual body having this experience and that 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 spiritual body was beyond space and time it 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 was you know, this whole time thing was completely as you said you know not quite understood by us and that that awareness that you're as just as much spirit as you are physical did that give you a sense of like wow i'm a spiritual being you know and that there are ancestors that are in spirit and there are and that somehow allowed you to realize that there was a spiritual awakening that allowed you to kind of wake up and realize that i am just numbing myself from my truth and my truth is that i'm so connected to this incredible infinite world of vibration frequency spirit and i and i don't have to have I, i'm not alone i have something you know uh, a relationship with a higher power or with spirit that somehow is kind of reeling me in from uh, the the wasting of my life did that happen to you i love i love that question and we we need a few more hours for that conversation but yes it okay. definitely happened and it was little moments of realization little moments of clarity that would come through and i had those quite profoundly in my early recovery i've had them quite profoundly when i go in and do sustained practice um like you're aware of the teacher's training course that i did in the shivananda organization so when I put myself into something that I'm going to say sometimes feels relentless, you're like you're on this disciplined schedule and you've got to show up and you're doing it even when you don't want to do it, then it breaks through some of those ego boundaries and I get glimpses of something bigger. I get it, especially when I'm going to say you force me to go to long pujas and rituals, not you, John, but like the, the environment that I'm in. And I have this like desire not to do it. And I have a resistance against it. And yet oftentimes that's the time where something kind of profound or more connected to the, the non-physical beings that are there in my support they they get their message to come through to me so i i have a i have a thing that probably started it all that um i when i was a practicing alcoholic and i went to france to celebrate my friend's birthday and i'd been there before at her mother's place and i knew it was near lourdes and i grew up as a catholic and my mother's name was mary and we were always raising money so people could go to Lourdes for healing. So I had one day with it was just me and my friend and her mother. And they said, is there something you want to do? And I said, well, why don't you take me to Lourdes? I hear it's close by. And they said, really, you want to go to Lourdes? And I was like, I do actually. Yeah, it's something that I'd like to see. So I went there and my mother was, as far as I was concerned, ill with alcoholism. She was 
she was in a wheelchair by then, having been knocked down in the street trying to make it to the liquor store, drunk. And and so I, I lit the candle. And by this time, I have no relationship with Catholicism, you know, but here I am. And I often say in yoga recovery, remember, some of our, our most profound moments are going to happen when we pray to the God that we don't believe in. And so I lit this candle and, you know, I'm trained in prayer, being a Catholic, but nothing came to me. So I just said, relieve her of her suffering. And my miracle was she died the next day. Mm. And that was not a happy miracle for me. Like there was a time lag for me to realize what a miracle of release that was. And so like, did I cause my mother's death? I don't mean it like that. I don't mean magical thinking, but it was this this act that I did to like pray for the release of the suffering she was in. I did not expect death to be the the solution. Um, And then when I was there in early recovery, and I honestly say I was vacuuming, I could see the place where I was standing and a song came on. It was Ave Maria. And as that song came on, I got like a little download of little parts of my life and I understood my whole connection with my mother it was like that like I had a a partner once and he had a car crash and he said it was almost like little frames of my life all came in front of me and I could see like my life in all these like frames and that was something that I experienced and it explained to me and it connected her role and my role with each other like really as teacher and some of these lessons aren't that pleasant I guess but the other thing that I want to say is and especially around the conversation that's going on right now if you want to bring in some of those more profound and subtle and spiritual connected moments and you want to bring that to the consciousness what I we we sometimes call it intuitive moments I think the access point is the breath and I think it's a little it's a little difficult that because we work with a biochemical model that because their drugs don't work right now, especially for their diagnosed conditions, which I think are also questionable, like the DSM and the way it does mental health conditions is highly questionable. And then the solution that's offered, like a chemical response to imbalanced chemicals in the brain as almost like a, a full solution, that seriously should be questioned but what we're now what we're doing now is we're moving towards like psychedelic assisted treatment and stuff whereas yoga moves towards the subtle assisted treatment which to me I have had almost reliably connected experiences using the breath and I'd say more the cathartic breathing not like the daily pranayama which which gives me a constant like plug-in source connection, but the profound like mind-blowing connections have come with things like the rebirthing breath and the transformative breathing. And I've seen those, I've seen those done in rehabs. And what's interesting is there's, there's usually a waiting list for them. People want to have that experience. So I thought just hearing you recently, and I got I to say this because this is just brilliant. The diaphragm is the muscle of immortality is what you said in the last conference I heard you speak of. And like that is amazing because that practice of pranayama 
is going to give us the access to this very subtle understanding that we call sattva so that we won't be fooled by form, so that we won't be stuck in this like subconscious patterning and conditioning that would hold us like in a cage, in a dungeon, like a prisoner of our own making, making, which is a lot of what addiction is. You know, like we say it's like self-will run riot. We say it's the, the prison that's self-created. And so imagine that. Imagine if your key in the door truly was just your own breath, free, always available. Like no uh, one controls it. No one can take it away from you. Yeah, I 100% agree. And it's one of the reasons why I've been, I've been writing so much about breathing and, and doing videos about different breathing techniques. And I think that the reason why, you know, that the big, you know, cathartic breaths and so on, the rebirthing breath and bastrika and all that, I do think that what, what they can do is they can um, create a state of being where the mind stops thinking. And then if you take that, if you take that breath down the next step is you have to take that breath down to the subtle, to the most subtle, to the most subtle. And that's the thing is like, when you think about thinning the veil between spiritual and physical, right. And assuming that if you had, you know, an awareness that you were also spiritual and physical, and you had all these spirit guys and angels and this whole spirit world, if, if you believe in it, is here supporting you. And here you are being sort of like wasting your life with alcohol or with drugs or whatever. You kind of like go like, wow, you know, there's a whole world out there for me in the spirit world that I can explore and, and realize that this is the, the human potential is so unlimited and I'm doing it, you know, with a bottle of vodka. It's crazy. So it's sort of like, I really feel like that spiritual, like, and I think that's why 12 Steps is sort of a very, you know, spiritual or, or religious or God oriented is because you really, that belief in a higher power, but in Ayurveda, it's not a belief in higher power. It's an experience of higher power, as you, as you said, and the breath is the key. And I think that's where coming down to that subtle, 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 subtle breath where you're really beginning to be aware. In Ayurveda, we always say that the more subtle it is, the more powerful it is. And that's what the breath does. And I think that's what you're, been, you're saying. And I think that's a really great point is that for people to, you know, use the breath to, to begin to thin that veil so they can begin to have a relationship, whatever they want to call it, a higher power, their spirit world, their ancestors, different cultures had an ancestor relationship. Some had, you know, gods like in Ayurveda, many gods, and some are just, you know, you know, Jesus and Mary and Catholicism, wherever, wherever, it doesn't matter, but it does matter that you have an experience of it, not just a belief of it. I think that really helps people because the people, like you said, like you guys are all went to church and you did all this stuff and you're miserable and you're on all these drugs. Like, why should I do that? You know, why, what's the, I mean, that you're, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I'm young. I want, I want to, I'm not going down that road. Um, but I think what you're talking about with the yoga recovery is taking people down a road where it's not just a yoga of recovery, it's sort of yoga of awareness and a yoga, a, a, ro a road of waking up to the truth of who they really are. And then from there, like you don't have to, you're not longing for a spirit, spiritual experience to wake you up and heal you. It, it, it sort of just becomes a knowing that you are really not in this alone where you are really a, a spiritual being having you know this physical ride 
And I think that's the, the, the beauty of what uh, I think the yoga of recovery does. And you work with people, right, to help guide them through these experiences and guide them through. I mean, do you work individually with people? I do. I work individually with people. For years, I've run retreats and courses at ashrams because, again, I think the environment of like having the full support of the place and the others, you know, the other teachers, the the swamis, even the food and the the setting of the place and the, the company of each other, that's important. And then I also take people over to India to do the panchakarma. And I think that's a ongoing sort of relapse pre prevention and we have this thing in recovery and it, it comes from 12-step model which is a to me one of the ways that they are speaking to sattva and they say more will be revealed that the more you continue on this path then it's like you will understand more as you go which to me is tuning to the subtle and I think like one of the things that I really noticed with our culture is that we think advance is getting our needs met and then getting our greed met in the sense of like, you know, there's certain base things that you need and our, hopefully our society structures would help you achieve those. That's questionable, especially when you add punitive measures to people who suffer with addiction, like the criminal justice system and things. So, but then like we've got our needs met and then we think in advance on that is like getting a designer car or getting like designer clothes and it's just clothes, you know. But if I went, like if I spend all my prana energy trying to get the, the, the upgrade on the material things, then... Like a lot of us exhaust ourselves in that level of living. And then we kind of wake up at some point and think, well, that hasn't worked. And I think that ties into a lot of what we see, which is the the one addiction process and how it can relate to anything. It can relate to me having a beautiful body so I can go out and be, you know, um, sexually and romantically attractive to others, which is the people addictions or the work addiction where I, I give all my time and energy over to work because I want the money for the status, for the in 12 steps, we call it um, power, property, prestige, that those can be addictive pathways in and of themselves. So we've got to like internalize this attention within ourselves. And that experience of higher power will, will be like revealing itself continuously and, and I do also want to make a, a distinction that I think we have the tamas effect to start with, you know, that heaviness, that darkness, that stuckness, that lethargy. So I think there is different levels of treatment needed. And I think the journey towards the subtle has to come from like a very active state. So therefore, like when we talk about the cathartic breathing methods, I think they help shift the tamas. So I think they're good in a rehab setting, but whether you would need to put that in as a lifestyle practice, like every single day of your life, no, I think that's more the pranayama practices, but it does take a bit of being able to sit still. It takes a bit of being able to actually sit with yourself. And so therefore through, in tamas, we often say you need a lot of, strict supervision like this is where like the hospital or the rehab is going to come in 
Whereas in Rajas, you need a lot of community support. Because I'll be honest with you, even after I'm now 22 years sober, there's certain things that I will do for myself. And then there's other things that I still need the support of signing up for the course. You know, somebody's going to take attendance or I've paid my money and so therefore I should go. And then I was, I've was i also met some people and I'm interested enough in that, like, you know, social aspect as well. And then for me, what is Sattva and we said, this is the more subtle realizations and experiences that sattva is when you can self-initiate more of your own practices and you can self-initiate them from that awareness that you have of what your need is today, how your internal system is, and not from, not from this noise of the what you should be from, from the mm. external, the, the advice, you know, um, and so I th- I am really interested in that journey and I'm I'm aware of how it changes. But one of the things that I will admit that I often need a yoga class to take me through the discipline or of a 60 or 90 minute practice. Because left to my own devices, 20 to 30 minutes is about all I can put in for yoga, like on my own mat under my own teacher's guidance. And I just accept that about myself. Like it's even it, even during COVID times, you know, I'm trained as a yoga teacher. I know how to go through my like 12 asanas and my pranayama and my shavasana, but I'll skip bits and I'll cut the time down. So it helps me to show up and have the support of a teacher. And other people have different things. Maybe it's their diet, you know, maybe it's their food choices. Maybe it's their, I don't know, other habits and behavior. But I think we run between those. We can self-initiate. We need social. We need support. And some of us, we need strict supervision, even in recovery. Yeah, I think, you know, what you said is really important. The journey um, isn't just from getting out of, you know, addictive behavior. The journey starts from sattva when we're born, which was, you know, free to just love and give and be free. And then we become, we, our senses kick in and we start realizing we can get toys from the outside world. We can get people to like us, approve us and appreciate us. So our, that's rajasic behavior. And then after we'd be overstimulated and we become exhausted in that search for getting satisfied from the outside world, sensory stimulation overload, we find ourselves sometimes numbing ourselves from the world because it's overwhelming and that's what we call thomas and what you're talking about is the journey is to go from thomas back to rajas back to sattva and how you know thomas is like being a little bit in the mud and you need a little bit of help getting out of there and that's where i think doing all of this or any of this in an ashram setting where the food is sattvic which means pure clean organic the environment is pure. People are meditating, they're yoga, breathing. Everybody there in the ashram is 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 on the journey of letting them letting feeling safe in that environment to let something really delicate of out their sensitivity be exposed. And and in that environment, I think you know we can find our way out of that cocoon of Thomas emotional blocking and 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 numbing and find our way back into the world of Thomas, where we can see the difference between being stimulated by the outside world or being attracted to that place on the inside, which very few of us are going. Because why should I go on the inside when I can have a, I have a cell phone and tell me everything I need right here, boom. I can do anything in a second. Why go in? It's crazy. This is instant, you know? So we're really challenged these days. 
But I think I just wanted to point out that that's the journey you're talking about. And then, you know, taking these people in, in you know, in retreat on an ashram, in an ashram is really beautiful. And then teaching them these tools of self-awareness so they can begin to realize not just a, not a mindset of like, you know, I think that like the thing about, and I want to ask you this, like the whole 12 step thing is like, you're an addict and you're going to be an addict and you're going to carry that label and the shame along with being addict for the rest of your life. And there's something from the Ayurvedic perspective, I think is way more than that. You're not an addict. You experience addict behavior. You're a being of light and you're full of love. But for some reason, the world, your mind chose to, that it wasn't safe to let that love out. So I became X. I experienced X, but I'm not, but I'm still, I'm not damaged forever. You know, it's almost like, you know, it, and, you know, I was Catholic, raised Catholic too. It's like, you know, there was some bad, you know, there were bad places you would go if you sold cookies from the cookie jar, you know what I mean? And, uh, and uh, so I, I think that, I wonder what you think about that, like those labels that we put on people, you know, do they ever go away, you know, in, in the world of being an addict? Yeah, and it's it's a good question and it's something that continuously comes up, Um and the way I bring the clarity that I have now understood about it is when I was a practicing alcoholic, it was the one thing that you could not know about me. It was the one thing. And I think Tamas is secrets, lies, hiding, shame and guilt. That's and so beautiful. I've learned to put this. It's under the lid. You mustn't know about it. I can't speak of it to anybody. And I remember the first time I said my name is and I am an alcoholic, it was a whole cathartic breakdown that I experienced, that I could yeah. barely breathe, I could barely speak, it was yeah. snot and tears everywhere. If I say that today, there isn't that charge anymore. Mm. So when I say my name is and I'm an alcoholic, I do that as uh, an aspect of identity for the person that's sitting there that cannot say those words or cannot believe that this condition can be healed to the extent that you see someone kind of healthy and happy and live in their life. So there's the ego's involvement and you have to break the ego's like rain on that. No one can know it cannot be admitted. And yeah. like, I'm going to say that the first word of the 12 steps is we, so we don't do this in isolation. Isolation is part of the disease process of addiction that Tamas isolates so the first word is we, but the second word is admitted because there's this denial system and it is the reign of the ego and it's just sincerest methods of coping that this is what we do and it may not be working, but we'll come up with a better result, you know, like we will make this better and we try hundreds of ways to make the wrong idea the right idea. And so therefore, I think that it is about identification and once we self-identify as the addict, it loses its power over us. It's like we bring it to the light, whereas in Tamas, it's like suppressed and repressed and hidden and never speak of it, which a lot of our like codependency is also, you've got a whole cast of characters that are never going to speak of it. You know, like we're all going to hide and deny the fact that this is happening. So it's an interesting thing because it's a collective thing. Yeah. No, I, I I love that. It's it's a it's a beautiful journey, and I think that 
you know, the yoga of recovery, you know, either with or without the 12 steps, you know, is, you know, I think really guiding people to a really true healing. And I'm really um, grateful for the work you're doing. And I'll definitely send folks your way. The book, guys, is The Yoga of Recovery by Durga Leela. Um, and, um, you know, Durga, can you just let us know how people can get in touch with you for more information? Yeah, um, gladly. Uh, so there's a website, yogaofrecovery.com. And my email is Durga, D-U-R-G-A at yogaofrecovery.com. And I want to say that you're welcome to come in and find out what we're about. So we do uh, register for free second Saturday of the month class every month. So you can come in and just get a glimpse of the sort of conversation that we're having. And it is called Yoga of Recovery and not Yoga for Recovery because it's pointing out that the the principles and practices within the multiple recovery pathways that are available are paralleling the principles and practices of the Vedic knowledge of both yoga and Ayurveda. So a lot of people think yoga is a physical practice on the mat and therefore it's a yoga class for people in recovery. But this is all the aspects of what we call creative self-inquiry and embodied healing so an embodied experience of recovery. So we bring practical, daily, simple routines into a way of becoming more subtle and more intuitive and more connected with each other and our deeper self. Brilliant, really brilliant. Durga, thank you. Um, we're out of time and I just want to thank you again for the work you're doing. And I think um, if any, I know we know uh, mental health issues are just so prevalent these days. And I think um, you're really providing a solution that will take them to a real a level, a life of real happiness, contentment, and joy, as opposed to just, you know, you know, putting a symptom at bay is really what, what Ayurveda and yoga can bring. So I'm so super grateful for the work you're doing and we'll definitely send folks your way. And if anybody's listening and you have someone that you know who's struggling, this is a, a really good book to get started. And then you can contact Turga for more information and get help that, you, that your loved ones need. So um, thank you so much for being here and hopefully uh, we'll talk soon. Talk again. Thank okay. you. Namaste. Bye. Namaste. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.